I'll be preaching this morning. And, and as Daniel mentioned last week, we're switching up our topic. Normally, we, we go through books of the Bible all the way through. We preach verse by verse, section by section, teaching and expositing the Word of God. This year, on the Advent season, we're doing something that's not really super common. We're going through the Christmas carols and looking at these songs that we sing, looking at these, these hymns that were written long ago and, and that we still sing today and that speak so truthfully into our lives today and that, that really make Christmas kind of feel like Christmas. And so today I'm going to preach on a maybe a lesser known Christmas carol, certainly an older one. The irony is that it was actually one of the newer ones written. Many of them were written back in the 1700s or, or before. This one uh, was written in 1863 by a guy named Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. It's called I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. Now, some of you guys might remember that name, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. There'll be a picture of him on the screen um, to my right or left. It just looks like a really old guy from the 1800s. I, I don't know if that's actually Henry Wadsworth Longfellow or just some guy I found on the internet. <laughs> Wikipedia said that's him, so you know, we'll go with that. Um, but uh, some of you guys probably remember him from your English lit class back in like high school or early college days because he was a poet. He's not a hymn writer. He never claimed to be a hymn writer, even though several of his poems were made into hymns. He was a Christian. And his poetry reflected that in some ways. So the story of this Christmas carol uh, is an occasion that happened back in the 1800s and it was written in 1863, as I said, but to really get the story, we got to go back three years early to the year 1860. Some of you may know the significance of that. Uh, similar to today in 1860, the country was deeply divided on a number of issues, political issues, social justice issues, economic issues, grievances that were going all the way back 100 years before to the founding of the country and, and even earlier. And in 1860, when the abolitionist Abraham Lincoln was elected president of the United States, it split the country in two. Because the slaveholding slave states in the South understood that Abraham Lincoln was not going to allow that system to continue. And so, because of those political divides, the country actually split. Longfellow was a devout pacifist. And so, he was deeply disturbed by this split and by the tensions going on in his country and by the way that people were, were viewing each other and talking about each other. He was very disturbed by that. But life continued very similar, very, very much the same as it had for Longfellow and his family for uh, about six or seven months into the war. Uh, he lived up in Massachusetts, which at least at first was pretty insulated. Uh, there wasn't any battles that happened up there. But in 1861, in June, his wife was tragically killed in a fire. And Longfellow himself was badly burned on his hands and on his face. And as he lay recovering in the hospital, three days later, his wife was buried on their 18th wedding anniversary. So this, as you can understand, 
put him into a despair and a depression that lasted for two years. And in his writings and his poetry reflect that over the course of that time. Early in 1863, his son, even though Longfellow was a pacifist, his son, against his wishes, stole away from home and went to join the war. And then in December of that year, Longfellow received a letter that his son had been critically wounded in combat. And immediately, knowing, that he, knowing the state of modern medicine at the time, well, modern medicine, I guess it was modern at the time, not now, not at all, the death rate for people who were wounded was very significant. So he immediately left his home in Massachusetts and went down to D.C. to collect his son and bring him home so that he could recover with the family. And on the morning of Christmas, he's sitting, taking care of his son, and he hears the bells from a nearby church ringing. And it brought him out of his depression. It brought him out of despair. And it spurred him to write this poem that we now sing today. And again, as I said, it's not super common, but I'm sure that some of you have heard it, at least the newer version that was, that was released uh, by Casting Crown several years ago. Um, it's, it's a really powerful song, and so let's go ahead and walk through that. He writes in the first stanza of the song, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet their words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. So last weekend, I put my GC through a little experiment. I didn't tell them about this. But I used them as a sermon illustration. Uh, but I'm not going to name any names, so don't worry. What I did during our icebreaker time is I asked them a question. And the question was this. Finish this sentence. It doesn't start feeling like Christmas until blank. And I got excellent answers. I got, it doesn't feel like Christmas until it gets cold outside, which, you know, living in Florida, I think most of us really feel this, because we hear songs like White Christmas and like the snow bells and the sleigh rides and all that. We don't get that. We get a minor cold snap, and then it's back to hot. And usually it's back to hot on Christmas Day itself. But once it gets cold outside, it starts feeling like Christmas. It starts feeling like Christmas. Somebody else said, uh, it doesn't feel like Christmas until the decorations start going up outside. Around town, in the mall, in my home, you see the lights around the neighborhood. It starts feeling like Christmas when you see those decorations. Somebody else said, it doesn't feel like Christmas until the day after Thanksgiving. <laughs> I can understand that. I, I kind of have the same kind of angst in my heart when I hear Christmassy stuff before Thanksgiving. Like, no, wait. Wait, just, just one day, just one day, that's all I ask. Let's just do Thanksgiving and then move on. And then we had, it doesn't feel like Christmas until I start hearing Christmas songs on the radio. And I think Henry Longfellow would have agreed with that last one. To him, it didn't start feeling like Christmas until he heard the sound of the bells ringing out those old hymns on Christmas morning. It didn't feel like Christmas until we started singing those songs. And many of those songs uh, have this refrain, and he echoes it in the last 
verse of every stanza with peace on earth, goodwill to men. That comes right out of Luke chapter 2 where these, these shepherds are sitting in a field and it's nighttime and it was dead quiet, I'm sure, because every time I go outside at night, it's dead quiet. And all of a sudden, there's this angel standing before them and he says, fear not! And he tells them that Jesus Christ has been born a Savior in, in Bethlehem. And then... The rest of the angels scare the living crap out of them when the entire heavens open up and you hear the sound of the angels singing, glory to God. This is Luke 2, 13 and 14. Suddenly there was an angel and a multitude and a host singing, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. The old King James says, peace on earth, goodwill to men. It has a little bit better ring to it. Might not be the original the original translation from the Greek, but it has a better ring to it. And uh, many people use the King James back in the day it was the predominant denomination, the denomination, predominant translation of the book. Uh, and uh, many people still use it today. Peace on earth and goodwill to men. Stanza two says, and thought how as the day had come, when belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And at face value, this is a really heartwarming thought. Christendom, uh, we've mentioned it several times here at Aletheia. I know that Theo kind of broke it down and defined it for us, but I'm just going to simply, it's a compound word, Christ's kingdom, Christendom. Uh, we don't talk that way today. Today, we would say something along the lines of the worldwide church or the universal church or Christians everywhere, the kingdom of God, something like that. And the idea in this stanza is that Christians everywhere, all over the world, are preparing for Christmas. They're getting ready to celebrate the birth of Jesus. They're getting ready to gather as family members and come together to worship God all over the world. And I think at this point, there was a sobering thought for Longfellow. Because remember, this is in the midst of the Civil War. The country has torn itself apart. People are killing each other on a, on a scale that has not been seen even since in American history. There were more lives lost in the, in the Civil War than in World War I, World War II, Vietnam. Um, it, was, it was a very deadly, bloody war. And Longfellow must have realized that if all Christendom is preparing for Christmas, all the churches are ringing the Christmas bells in the north and in the south. Undoubtedly, there were Christians on both sides. And people had their own reasons. The individual man had his own, his own reasons for fighting whatever they were. Whether they were grievances from the country or political differences or just protecting my home because there's an invading army coming near me. Um, but earlier that year, Abraham Lincoln had very clearly defined the war in 1863 with the Emancipation Proclamation. See, before this, the North was kind of faltering in the war. It was, it was started as kind of like, we've got to keep the Union together. But that started not to make sense very much after everybody started killing each other. And so... Uh, Lincoln, as an abolitionist, realized they needed direction. 
And so he issued the Emancipation Proclamation, which freed all the slaves. And immediately and irrevocably, it changed the whole course of the war. So no longer was it about unity. No longer was it about the grievances of the past. Now, this is about ending slavery, this corrupt system that has kept men and women in bondage from birth till death. The South, likewise, issued counterstatements upholding the system of slavery and saying, well, we're, you're fighting to abolish it, we're fighting to defend it. Christians must have had, and, and did, according to their journals, have serious reservations about this. But once you're in the war, you're stuck. Because it's either, you know, refuse to fight and be shot by your own guys, or continue to fight. And so, if you, if you, you can still search out and read their journals today and see what Christians of that time thought about these things. But there were many notable men on both sides who were Christians. And this also brings us into the third stanza because of the war, because so many men were dying daily. So many men were not going home to their families because they'd been killed in combat or wounded in combat. This Christmas was going to be different than any other Christmas ever. And he writes, And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong, and it mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Many versions of the song in the last 30 years or so omit this verse. Um, it's not very Christmassy. I mean, you know, Christmassy like songs are like, you know, jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle. You know, it's very happy, very upbeat, very, very much focused on uh, either like the Christmas time and the Christmas celebration or focused on Jesus and what he did. But, but at this time in the history, everyone was going through this. Every family had experienced a loss. Every family had someone who was not there that should have been there. Longfellow himself writes, after the loss of his wife, how, inexpre how inexpressibly sad are all the holidays. A Merry Christmas, say the children, but that is no more for me. Perhaps someday God will give me peace. Now there's hate and conflict all over the world still today. There is tragedy and loss. There is pol pol politics and and issues that are going on that, that drive brother from brother, uncles from uncles, and, and, and just, it, it, it is so divisive. And the hate that is spouted by every side in politics these days, they use these weapons of hate, shame, and fear to coerce people into their own way of thinking, to drive people to go on their side. And that mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. That completely mocks what the angels proclaimed 2,000-ish years ago. That Jesus would bring hope and peace to the world. But then Longfellow remembered. He says, then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, 
goodwill to men. See, the message of Christmas is the message of hope. It's not just Jesus is a baby in a manger. It's not just the wise men came to give him gifts. It's not just the story in Luke chapter 2. It's not just the story in Matthew. It's the entire Bible. It's the whole thing. The messages around Christmas uh, ought to be messages of hope. God sees those that are faithful to him. The angels proclaim, peace on earth to those in whom God is well pleased. God sees the faithful and he is active and at work in their lives. And someday, as we learned last week, talking about the second coming at Christmas time, someday he will come and he will put all things to right. And he will reign over this world. There will be hope. There will be peace. There will be salvation. But we're in this thing that the philosophers and the theologians call the already but not yet. Jesus did the work. It is done. But we have not yet come into his full kingdom. All the prophecies have not been fulfilled. Everything that was said has not yet happened. And we, we're, we just live in this time and, and things are looking pretty bleak. Honestly, uh, I, I've never seen, I, I know I'm not that old, I'm only 32-ish, 33, uh, I don't remember. Um, I'm not that old, but like, I have never seen uh, in the politics, in my short existence, uh, so much divisiveness and so much just like cutting people off if they disagree with you. There's so much tribalism and, and groupthink in the world today, in our country, all over the place. Many of it, much, much of it is probably driven by social media, driven by social media, and, and you can get on there and say whatever you want to whoever you want and hide behind the mask of, uh, this is just my online profile. Might not even have my real name, but you can say whatever you want. And people, and find people who agree with you. No matter how ludicrous and crazy the assertions you're making are. And we, we get to this point where we divide ourselves into these groups. I'm not talking about us, particularly. Maybe, maybe not. But it, as people, we, we divide ourselves into these groups. And we only listen to the people who have the same opinions as us. And we only say the things that we think other people will agree with. And we divide ourselves along these lines. You don't want anything to do with that uncle who voted for the wrong political party last election. You don't want anything to do with that guy or girl in your class who's on the wrong side of a social justice issue or the wrong side of a public health issue. You don't want anything to do with someone who thinks differently than you. There's no reasonable discourse anymore. There's, there's only hate. And if you're on the other side of this, it can be daunting. If you've ever felt somebody cut you off because they know you have a stance on an issue, that can be very heart hurtful. And I think the message of this hymn rings true today, crystal clear. The world is a dark place. There is real evil here. 
but God is alive and at work in the world. And we should look to Him for the source of our hope. The scripture that Jeff read for us this morning, uh, Psalm 121, I think is a perfect example of this, this hope that comes from the Lord. I think it shows how God is active and at work in the world. And I think that Henry Longfellow was pondering this very psalm while writing the poem. So let's go ahead and take a look at it. If you have your Bibles, please open it up to Psalm 121. If you don't, uh, we have Bibles in the back, or you can look on the screen to my right and left. Now, this psalm is called a psalm of ascent. That's the first thing you read in most Bibles is, is the title. Right, right under Psalm 121, it says a psalm of ascent. And simply what that means is that this psalm was written by and for pilgrims who were on their way to Jerusalem to worship at the temple according to the law of Moses. There were various times that everyone would have gone to the temple. To, you know, if you remember the story of Jesus around this time, he was brought to the temple as a baby uh, from all the way up in Galilee, which is like in the far north. It's quite a long journey. And as they're going up, the reason it's called the Psalm of Ascent is, is not only because uh, Jerusalem is described the mountain of Zion, but also it's literally like on a hill. And it's in the hill country of Judah. And you are literally walking uphill when you're getting there. And the psalmist is, is on this journey. And in verse 1, he says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. There were many, many perils on this journey. I mean, this isn't like 21st century America. You just hop in your car and go. This is like many days, many weeks long journey. And there's perils out there. There are wild, wild animals out there that are dangerous. There are bandits out there that are dangerous. The, 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 just the elements of the sun uh, and, the, and things are, are not the way they are now. And so the psalmist says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? And then he remembers what he has learned. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. God made heaven and earth, and we have access to him. We have unlimited access to him. And the promise that he says is that he will not let your foot be moved in verse 3. He who keeps you will not slumber. He, behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. God is ever watchful. He is always doing this for us. He is always looking out for us. He is always going before us and preparing the way. So how do we respond to that? Psalm 119, 105 tells us, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Likewise, Proverbs 23, verses 5 and 6 tell us, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. The promises of Scripture are applicable to us who are in Christ. And we need to follow them. When we hear the word of God, we've got to do it. We need to live by the word. 
And that is how it will be a lamp to our feet. That is how God will not let our foot be moved. If you're just out there, you're not reading the Bible, you're not plugged into community, you're not following God, your life is probably not going to go very well. And I know that because it happened to me. Personal experiences. The times that I am not in the Word daily, or at least weekly, when I am not plugged into God, not plugged into the source, are the times that I am drifting and I am making angry comments and I'm road raging and I'm not being very nice to my wife. But when I'm plugged into the scripture, when I'm walking by the word, are the times when I can feel God's presence and I can feel God clearing the way for me and I can see God clearing the way for me. And I can be in a challenging situation or see something coming up ahead at work and pray and God moves it out of the way. I don't know how, but he does it. This is a promise. The second way God keeps us. So first way God keeps us is he keeps us on the right path. I forgot that I had points. Sorry, got carried away. The second way God keeps us, he keeps us by shepherding us. And honestly, I was thinking about just, you know, I've already only got one point in my sermon, just having like my support point just be my one point, be one point also. But God shepherds us. Verses five through eight of Psalm 121 tell us, the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. Yes. Verse 8. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. I don't know how I lost myself in the middle of the verse, but moving on. God is going to shelter us from the elements. That's what he's saying in verse 5 and 6. He's going to shelter you from the elements. He's going to keep you from the dangers of the night. He's going to keep you from all evil. He's going to keep your life. This is reminiscent of Psalm 23, where the psalmist David, being a shepherd, says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lay down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Both of these psalms have very similar themes going on. God is taking out, God is looking out for you. God is taking care of you. God is shepherding you. He's not going to let you foot, he's not going to let your foot be moved because he is leading you along the path. He's going to keep you your your shade and by by day and not by night because he's going to lead you into green pastures and beside still waters. He is going to prepare your way. He is going to restore your soul. He is going to keep you sane and, and happy and healthy and hopeful through the valley of the shadow of death. And we fear no evil because he's right there. And his rod and his staff comfort you. 
Now, the shepherds, the rod and the staff are two different tools that they would use. The rod was a weapon. That was used to keep predators away, keep wolves away. Probably not bears, probably not lions, but definitely wolves, coyotes, things like that, smaller predators that can come up and, and take the sheep. The staff was used to gently prod the sheep, gently lead them around. The rod and the staff, they comfort us. God is looking out for you. He's protecting you and he's guiding you. Jesus is that good shepherd. He says it himself in John 6. I don't have the verse for us, but I have been preceding that immediately before the I am the good shepherd passage. Jesus says this in verse 37 through 40. All that the Father has given to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. And this is the will of the one who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that was given to me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks upon the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. This is our hope. It doesn't matter what happens to you in this life because Jesus died to bring you into His family. Jesus died to bring you into his fold. He is the one who is going with us. He is the one who is by our side. And he is the one that was born in a manger 2,000 years ago. Jesus is our shepherd and he, we must look to him as our source of hope. Why? Because of these things that I've listed. Because he takes care of us, because he guides us, and because he protects us. And there are so many things that we look to other than God for our hope, especially at Christmas time. It's so challenging because of the place that we live. And it is a great blessing to live in America because this place is safe and it's prosperous. But it's also it comes with its challenges. There are many things that can be said that can define American culture, American cultural values. In my estimation, it comes down to one phrase written by Thomas Jefferson back in 1776. We hold these things to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. And among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, don't get me wrong. There are some amazing things that have been done in the name of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. There are some good, godly, honorable things that have been done in the name of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. But on the flip side, especially around Christmas, this pursuit of happiness is, is pursued with reckless abandon. Everywhere you look, everywhere you go, everything you see, it's buy, 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 Got to be happy. Got to be happy. 
These deals are, these deals are too good to pass up. No money? No problem. Buy it with credit. Bad credit? No credit check. No money? No down payment. Just sign right here. No money down. You gotta buy that toy for Johnny because it'll make him so happy. It'll make him smile. You've got to buy that doll for Sue because it'll make her feel super special. You gotta buy that diamond necklace for your wife. You gotta buy that standing rib roast to feed 100 people at your feast even though you only have 10 coming. Everything around this time. I feel like Linus from Peanuts. Commercialism! Ah! That's all I'm saying. Everything is consumed with being happy and making yourselves happy. I wish that my heart wasn't so full of stuff. I wish that I was not so consumeristic. I wish that I could avoid all of the great deals that are on Amazon right now. I wish that my heart was more full of Jesus. I wish it was more full of hope. If you're looking for application this morning, that's it. I've said it enough times. We have got to look to Jesus for our hope, not the things of this world. If we go back to Luke chapter 2, that is what the angels actually said 2,000 years ago. In verse 10, the angel said to the shepherds by night, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign unto you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, laying in a manger. This angel was prophesying. Jesus laying in a manger was not the point of Christmas. It was the incarnation of God. But Jesus laying in a manger was the sign that it's going to be okay in the end. That this is not the end. That this is, this is not all there is. There is more. There is life everlasting. There is a God who loves you and brings you into his family. There is hope for Henry Longfellow to see his fanny again. There is hope that Charles, his son, will recover from his wounds. There is hope that the country would be, would be healed and brought back together. There is hope. There is hope for an eternity. There is hope for this life now because God takes care of us. So what does all this stuff have to do with Jesus of Nazareth? All of these things that we do at Christmas, all of these traditions, the gifts, the food, the family, the gathering, what does that have to do with it? Pastor Stephen, you say. Maybe you don't. But you may say, 
We're told in the Bible to be generous. We're told in the Bible to outdo one another by showing honor. Yes and amen. Do it. There is nothing wrong with the practices that we have at Christmas, the traditions that we have at Christmas. There is nothing wrong with them. But I pray that you would look at your traditions with fresh eyes. That you would look at what you do this year and every other year and see what's the main attraction. Is it reading Luke 2 for five minutes before we open gifts for an hour and a half? Is it grandpa praying for 10 minutes before we eat a feast? Is it really centered about Jesus? Are we really keeping Christ at the center of Christmas? We have these things that we do, but what's the main attraction? What's the draw? Is it the gifts? Or is that Jesus was given as a gift for you? Is it the gathering of family together? Or is it that God brought you into his family? and adopted you as children? Is it the Christmas feast, or is it the hope that's in your heart that's most important? So this year, let's not just simply say like we're keeping Christ at the center of Christmas, but let's actually do it. Let's actually look at what we do before we do it and think about that. I'm going to ask the band to go ahead and come back up. As we turn to a time of reflection before we take communion. My challenge to you this morning is this. When you go home for Christmas, wherever you go, look at your traditions. Really look at them. Think about them. Do they reflect the hope that is in you that came from Jesus as your Savior? Would people from the outside looking in be able to see that you were a believer by the way that you celebrate Christmas? Earlier this year in the fall, Meyer and I were privileged to host some international students in our home. And as I was preparing for this sermon after Thanksgiving, um, I was just, I was thinking about this and mulling it over my mind. It's like, if we invited them to my house for Christmas, if we invited them to go down to Orlando to celebrate Christmas with my family, would they see Jesus? Or would they see a bunch of consumeristic Americans worried about stuff and yelling at each other? Would they see the stress or the hope? God, I hope they see that. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word. God, thank you for your joy that you've given to us. Thank you for your hope. Thank you for your son. Thank you for coming to us. For making us right by you. God, I pray that we would be people who are said to keep Christmas well. 
God, I pray that we would be people of the word. That we'd be people who, who know you and who look to you for their hope and their help for salvation. People who look to you for their help when they're in trouble. People who look to you for their help when they're looking at the hills. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.